How many parents do we have in the house? Raise your hand, please. All right, parents um, who still have children at home, now raise your hand. Okay. Keep your hand up if you are thankful when your children obey you. How many? I've got more hands than I have parents on that one. All right. Keep your hand up if you have children who obey you all the time. Well, the number changed dramatically on that. Did you notice? How many of you say, I can't even get the dog to obey me? Okay. <laughs> I saw that. You know, we have, Becky and I have always uh, had a dog since we've, I think since our early marriage, and we love dogs. And um, our dog celebrated her birthday this week, actually. It was a wonderful thing. We didn't do a thing about it. She wasn't aware of it. But um, <clears throat> we've always had dogs. And I, when we got this dog that we have now, we have a little 15-pound Havanese dog. And so when we got her, I said, you know, we're not going to mess this up this time because we've not always done great in the dog training thing in the past. And so uh, I, we worked really hard at teaching her to, uh, she actually rings a bell when she needs to go outside. We went and got a little bell and put it on a string and it hangs on a knob on the back door when she needs to go out to the backyard, do whatever it is that she's going to do out there. You know, she takes her paw and rings a little bell and it's just a wonderful thing, except the problem with that is she decided this bell ringing thing works for lots, on lots of things. Whatever she wants, she rings the bell. Now everybody in the whole house rings the bell. We all come, you know, we all come running. So, but we decided we would do that, and that's actually worked pretty well for us. And the reason that I wanted to work so diligently at teaching the dog to be more obedient and to uh, function a little better is because our previous dog, we had a soft-coated Wheaton Terrier, and if I even mention her name, Becky's going to tear up because she likes see she see the look on her face because we love that dog so much. But that dog had a few issues also. And one is that she loved to dart out the front door and run the entire neighborhood. Have you ever had a dog like that? And invariably, it was a Sunday morning, suit and tie, ready to go to church, ready to come and lead the people of God in worship. And I would open the front door maybe to step out and get the newspaper so we would have it for the afternoon and open that front door and that dog like a bullet would head out the front door and she's running out over the neighborhood and you could see me on any given Sunday morning diving into my neighbor's yards trying to get the dog. And so I determined that we would not have that situation. So we worked hard at training the dog and thank God for obedience school. How many of you are ready to send your kids to obedience school? How many of you wives are ready to send your husbands items? I hear the awkward laughter in the room. I want to talk to you this morning about a word that the Lord has really been dangling in my heart is the best way that I can describe it for a couple of weeks. And um, this message, as are all of my messages, this message is for me as much as it is for you. And the word is a very simple little four-letter word, but it defines for us the very foundation of our walk with the Lord. And that very simple little word is this, obey, obey. Simple, easy word, simple little action verb, but so very, very hard to do, isn't it? There's something in us that wants to defy that word, obey, that wants to go against the system. 
Now, we know we have to obey the laws of the land if we want to keep from paying the consequences. Uh, I don't probably need to remind you that tax time is coming up pretty soon, and we, we either pay your, pay your taxes or you're going to pay the consequences. And if you exceed the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket. We know a little something about that at our house. And so those kinds of things happen. We have to obey the laws of the land. And our laws are essentially designed to say that if you do the crime, you do the time. In other words, if you break the law, if you are not obedient to what is put before you, then there are consequences to be paid. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 13 that we must submit ourselves to governing authorities. And the way he states it there, let's be clear, he doesn't present it as an option. He doesn't present it as a suggestion. He says that's what we are to do. Also, the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 13 tells us that we must obey those who have the right to rule over us and that we are to submit to them. But again, the problem is this. We all have our own will. We have our own way. We know what's best for us. We know what we want to do. And submitting to the point of obedience does not come naturally for most of us. Our focus this morning is not so much on obedience to human authority, but I do want to talk about obedience to the sovereign Lord because the Lord has called us to be obedient. Hallelujah. Most of us in this room are committed believers. That's why I asked that at the beginning. I know that you're here because you love Jesus. You've committed your life to him. You've declared Jesus to be Lord of your life. And that should mean for us that we've given him the right to rule and reign in our lives and that we submit to his lordship and to the authority of his word. But the reality of it goes a little more like this. Those are things we say, and we may mean them with our heart, but the truth is that most of us live our lives as though his word and the guidance he gives us through the indwelling Holy Spirit even is something that we can take as an option or that we can take as a suggestion. And it sure seems to me the further we go in life, the more our culture is bearing, uh, coming to bear on us, that that becomes more and more and more true, that we take the word of the Lord as an option. We take it as a suggestion. And essentially, what we, we say by our actions is, we'll submit to his word and his will if we like it, if we like what he's saying, if it appeases our flesh, if it's, if it's convenient to us, we'll, yeah, we'll obey if it's convenient. And yeah, I think like we say it's a God thing, you know. It's a God thing if we like it. It's a God thing if it appeases our flesh. It's a God thing if it's convenient for us or, or if it doesn't require too much of us, if it isn't going to cost us anything. Well, I'm calling us here today from a life where we take his word as a suggestion to the place where we truly live consecrated lives and accept his word and his will as the final authority. How many believe in the authority of scripture? We need to be called back to that place where it's no longer an option, but it has absolute authority for us. And we do that not only because we trust him, not only because we know that he knows far better than we do what's best for us, 
But also, we do this, church, we choose to live a life of obedience to God because he's the sovereign Lord, and, and our life of submission to him is a reflection of our love for him. We do it because we love him. And again, our culture is constantly beating us and badgering us to follow other gods. Have you noticed that? It's all around us. Other gods that are there. And it's, and it's, just, it's just there for us. But as believers, our obedience cannot be based upon what's trending, cannot be based upon just what's popular. I hope you're hearing me today. But our obedience to the Lord must be based upon the Word of God and the Word of the Lord and what He says to us, not just what our culture says, not just what's popular, what's trending. Obedience is not based upon social media, but it's based upon the Word of the Lord. You're asleep on me this morning, aren't you? I'm going to try to leave this point alone as much as I can. But I have to say, I see so many people on social media who would rather ask all their friends, should I do this or this or this, and then get all that response than they would go to and ask the Lord Jesus himself. When are we going to come to the point where it matters more to us what he thinks than even what our friends are saying to us? When are we going to come to the point that it matters more to us what he says than what all the influences and what television and what all the culture says that the word of the Lord is the final authority in us? We need to come to that point, and the church needs to say amen. amen. And we must understand, church, being obedient to the word of the Lord is a deliberate, intentional choice that we make. It's not a casual thing. You just don't saunter through life, go through today, wake up tomorrow, whenever, have your coffee, do whatever. It's a deliberate, intentional choice. Today, Lord, I'm going to obey you. You see, we don't drift into obedience casually. You can, however, drift into disobedience, and that's very, very easy to do. We had a young man who spoke to our students at Bethesda Christian School this week. They had uh, observed Spiritual Saturation Week, and he was a very gifted communicator. His name was Chris Estrada. I hope he will share with us on a Sunday morning sometime. Very, very wonderful communicator. And I, on Friday as he was speaking, I literally thought he was, he'd been reading my notes and was stealing my thunder. But he said he was talking about one of the ways that we disobey is, is really what, what is partial obedience. And we're so good at that. Par I partially obey. And he talked about partial disobedience is really disobedience. How many of you know that's true? Partial obedience is not the whole thing. You don't, you don't get an option on that. We may get 99% of it right and miss the 1%. And we'll be so proud of the 99% that we have right. We might even be willing to make that known and talk about it. And so glad we did this and this. But that 1%, we want to minimize it, that we fail to obey. And we want to shove it under the rug. But here's the problem with obedience to God. It's all or nothing. Partial obedience is disobedience. Say that with me. Partial. But we are so likely to say, it's just that one thing. It's just that one thing. What's the title of this message today? It's just that one thing. And we can drift so easily. We don't know yet what has happened to the Malaysian aircraft that has vanished. But like you, I pray 
for the sake of all, the families and everyone involved, that they're able to bring some resolve to that mysterious situation. And we pray that God's grace covers them in Jesus' name. The situation, however, reminded me of another aircraft incident that happened a few years ago. And it so relates to this idea of how easily we can drift from a life, even a life of obedience. On October 31st, 1983, over 30 years ago, the first officer of Korean Airlines Flight 87 entered the cockpit for his Boeing 747 to program the flight as it departed from Anchorage, Alaska. Some of you remember this story. He punched into the computer the numbers that engaged the flight navigation system. But there's reason to believe that he inverted two numbers, thereby causing a routing error of one and a half degrees. 50 miles out of Anchorage, the deviation was barely noticeable. 100 miles out, only an expert could have detected that the flight was off course. But as the 747 jet continued its journey through the Aleutians and out into the Pacific, its flight path veered off course by hundreds of miles, taking it on a trajectory crossing the then Soviet Union. Russian radar picked up the flight and jet fighters were scrambled. They shot down the Korean plane and all aboard were lost. It seemed at the beginning like only a very, very small mistake of one and a half degrees that couldn't even be noticed. A mistake that remained unseen and undetected for ever so long, but which ultimately resulted in massive disaster. Had the flight path error been detected and corrected early on, tragedy could have been averted. It was just that one thing. In this thing of obedience to God, you can't invert the numbers. It's all or nothing. You can't rely on the 99% that you get right. He's either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. It's just that one thing that you are being asked to do or that one thing that you're being told not to do. Adam, see this paradise? See all the vegetation and the rich, lush fruit on the trees? You can eat freely of every fruit in the garden, of every tree in the garden. Look at all that I've created. Look how nourishing it will be for you. Look how delicious it is even to the eyes. Look at all that. You can eat freely of all of it. Just this one thing. Don't eat of that one. Because if you eat from that one, you will surely die. But Lord, that's the most attractive one of all the tree, trees in the garden. Man, that's the one that appeals to me the most. It's the one I, I just salivate after the fruit that's coming from that, that tree. It's the prettiest one. Surely, if, if I can eat of all these other trees, just in some ways it's just another tree. Surely I can have that one also. If it's okay to do that, surely I can do that. But the Lord said, just this one thing. Don't eat of that one. We are so good, I am, of excusing it every way that we possibly can. We can come up with all kinds of reasons why if we can eat all of these trees, we can do that one. Everybody else is doing it. Even church people are doing it. Everyone's talking about it. It's the trend. It's the way it's, everything's happening. 
and we're being routed right by that tree because our culture has routed us right by that tree. But the Lord said, no, not, not that one. We can look ever so good with our 99%. We can even look ever so spiritual with our 99%. And we can wave the banner of our 99%. But church, today, the Lord is putting his finger right on that one thing. Right on that 1%. And I can almost see him getting out the heavenly spotlight and getting it positioned and focused as he flips on the light to say to you and to me, it's just this one thing. Just one thing. Obedience plays a crucial role all throughout Scripture. In reference to the creation story just mentioned, notice with me that God, what he did not ask for from Adam and Eve. He didn't ask for faith. He didn't ask for humility. He didn't ask for love. He was asking for their obedience because in, obedience includes all of those things. It is foundational to our Christian walk. Obedience is. The one thing that determines man's, man's destiny is for him to be able to utilize his free will to choose to obey wholly and completely that which the Lord asks of him in every every aspect of his life. It determines your destiny. Not just, did you go to church and enjoy the music today, as wonderful as it was. Not just, did you pay your tithe just a few minutes ago in the offering, as critical as that is to your life of obedience. It's not just, but it's also, what did you do in the secret place where no one else is watching, where it's only you and the Lord, and you're hoping somehow God isn't even watching? though you know better. What is it that is your just one thing, just one thing that we so easily shove under the rug that we've justified, we've excused, at least in our own mind? Moving from the Genesis account, we go to 1 Samuel. We read what happened to King Saul, and I can't help but drop this story in because it's the classic example of doing so very much right but missing the one instruction, and therewith the consequences came. Read with me as they put it on the screen. I'll read it to you. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord. Do we have the, do we have the scripture? It was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Now listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Look at verse 3 because these were the instructions. Remember every part of it. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. So Saul mobilized his army at Telaim. There were 200,000 soldiers from Israel and 10,000 men from Judah. Then Saul and his army went to a town of the Amalekites and lay in wait in the valley. Go to verse 7. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but he completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and goats and cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. 
They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and he has refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried out to the Lord all night. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. And someone told him, oh, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. And then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. He said, oh, may the Lord bless you. He said, I've carried out the Lord's commands. And Samuel said, well, what's, what's all that noise I hear? What's, what's all the bleeding of sheep and goats and the lowing of cattle I hear? Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted. But, oh, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. That, that to the Lord your God. We've destroyed everything else. Doesn't that sound spiritual? We're going to do that because that'll look good. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop and listen to what the Lord told me last night. Oh, what did he tell you? Saul said. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord has anointed you king of Israel. What he's setting up here and clearly establishing conversation is the line of authority and the line of responsibility. And the Lord sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, until they are all dead. Which part of all dead did you not understand? Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. And then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, cattle, and plunder to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, man? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices? or your obedience to his voice. Listen. Say it with me. Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission. Just in case we didn't get it, do it again. Obedience is better and submission. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command for I was afraid of the people and I did what they demanded. Oh, man. Now, let me just tell you, as a pastor, I know what it is to listen to the loud voices of people. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a vantage point, And theirs is right about what's supposed to happen. I know the pressure of that. But God give us people, not only in this church, but in every church across America, leaders who would rather listen to the voice of the Lord and obey the voice of the Lord than all of the loud voices that are coming their direction. That's about the weakest amen we've had all year long. I say that because it really is an issue, church. I've just, Todd and I were just at a conference, a pastor's conference in California this week. And it's startling to me 
to see how many pastors in this country would rather listen to the voice of man and to the loud voices that are coming in the direction than they would to listen to the voice of the Lord. God, help the church today to have leaders who want to hear the voice of the Lord. Saul cratered. He says, I've disobeyed your instruction the Lord's command because I was afraid of the people and I did what they demanded. But now, please forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel replied, I will not go back with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king of Israel. This is so dramatic here. As Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and he has given it to someone else and this had to hurt. Someone who's better than you. And he who is the glory of Israel will not lie, nor will he change his mind, for he is not human that he should change his mind. Then Saul pleaded again, I know I've sinned, but please at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. Save my face. So Samuel finally agreed and went back with him, and Saul worshiped the Lord. And then Samuel said, the man of God said, Bring King Agag to me. So here walks in Agag, arriving full of hope, for he thought, surely the worst is over, and I have been spared. But Samuel said, as the, your sword has killed the sons of many mothers, and we know how that displeased the Lord, now your mother will be child. And Samuel cut Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Notice with me, it took the man of God to step in and finish what the disobedient person would not do. And he had to walk in and if, for, for this to be pleasing to the Lord, he said, no, the job's not done because here's what God said. I don't know what that says to you, but it challenges me. What is it in my life that has to be cut to pieces, that has to come absolutely to death, absolutely to death, if I'm going to walk in a life of obedience to the Lord? I'm okay with your silence this morning, by the way. What is it that has to be put to death? Let me be almost facetious about it. For some people, it's credit cards that you need to cut up before the Lord. And some people have done that this week in the Financial Peace University class, thank the Lord. For some people, it's relationships that need to be absolutely cut to death. What is it in your life that the Lord has put the spotlight on today? It's just that one thing. What is it he's putting the spotlight on in you? It says that must come to death. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. We've looked at Genesis. We've looked at 1 Samuel. There are lots of places we could stop and explore this idea of obedience all through Scripture. But I want to take you to the very, very end of the book. In the last chapter of Revelation, we read something here, and I'm going to tie this together. Revelation 22. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. Remember the tree? Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. 
from beginning to end, from paradise lost to paradise regained. The law is unchangeable, and it is only obedience to the Lord that gives access to the tree of life and to the favor of God. And if you ask how the change was affected out of the disobedience at the beginning that closed the way to the tree of life, to the obedience at the end that we just read, to where, again, we, uh, we gained entrance to the tree of life, let's turn to that which stands midway right between, which is the cross of Calvary. And we read a passage like Romans chapter 5 that says, Because one person disobeyed God, Adam, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, Jesus, many will be made righteous. Or Philippians 2 verse 8, He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God has elevated him to the place of highest honor. Or how about Hebrews 5? Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And so you see how the whole redemption of Christ consists in restoring obedience to its place. Obedience was messed up in the garden, but it is regained in the book of Revelation, all because of what Jesus has done in restoring obedience. He showed us what it's all about. That ought to give us all reason to bless the name of Jesus today. Andrew Murray says it this way, the beauty of his salvation consists in this, that he brings us back to the life of obedience through which alone the creature can give the creator the glory due to him. Paradise, Calvary, heaven, all proclaim with one voice, child of God, the first and the last thing that God asks of you is simple, universal, unchanging obedience. The foundation of our life with Christ and our walk with him is that we learn to obey him, not in 99% of our lives, but in all of it, even in just that one thing. Now, I'm not really here this morning to try to to define for you what that one thing is. I'm quite sure you don't need me to do that. And you may say, Dan, I got a whole lot more than just one thing, one area of disobedience in my life. Whatever levels of disobedience you may be allowing in your life today, you need to bring it before the Lord, and that's what the call is here, and surrender it to him. It's the only way to true life in Christ and the real victory in him. But as I close this morning, I wanna talk about one specific thing. And I don't know who this is for today, But I have that weird, strange sense that this is for somebody. I'm going to go back to the story when the prophet Samuel was to anoint Saul to be the first king of Israel. I want you to listen real carefully. The Bible tells us that God sent Samuel to anoint Saul and then to tell him several things that will happen to him when he would leave Samuel. So that when those things were fulfilled... Saul would know with confidence that it really was the Lord who had been saying all of these things. In other words, the prophet said, I'm going to anoint you to be king, and then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, and this, and then you're going to hear this, and you're going to see this. And, and then so then when it took place, it solidified in Saul's mind that this really was the Lord. The Bible tells us that after all those things then were fulfilled, and they were, including the Spirit of God coming upon Saul where he starts to prophesy with the prophets, there was an instruction that was part of this that the prophet told him. There was an instruction given that I want us to notice here in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil 
And he poured it over Saul's head and he kissed Saul and he said, I'm doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. And now here comes the list. I'm not gonna read it all the list. But the prophet gives Saul a list of all the things that are going to happen. Things he will see, things he's going to observe, things that will come to him, things he will hear. All this list of things. And after these signs, verse 7, after these signs take place, do what must be done for God is with you. Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me and I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instruction. As Saul turned and started to leave, God even gave him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. So let's see what happens here. Samuel comes to Saul. The prophet goes to Saul. He says, you're the man. God has chosen you. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. You're going to see all these things. You're going to hear all this, experience all this. And now you're going to be the king, and you're going to meet some prophets, and the Spirit of God is going to come down upon you. And it all happens, folks, just like that. And then Samuel says, now wait, you're, you're going to go to Gilgal and you're to wait for me there. And after seven days, I'm going to come and offer certain sacrifices to God which will show your thanksgiving and, and then I will tell you then what you are to do. You'll get further instructions then. Now I want you to notice what God really was saying to Saul, the prophet. He was saying, not only am I going to make you the king, but I want the privilege of directing your every step. I will tell you what to do. And now we see one of the greatest tragedies in all of the Bible. All of that stuff happens. He's the king. The Philistines gather to fight a battle against the Israelites. Saul is in Gilgal, as instructed, but he doesn't know what to do. He's afraid to let the men go and fight because the sacrifice to God has not yet been offered. And so Samuel hasn't shown up yet. Day after day goes by. It's not the seventh day, but then the seventh day comes finally, and now look what happens. Stay with me just five more minutes. The men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in. Because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, they tried to hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and cisterns. Some of them crossed the Jordan River and escaped into the land of Gad and Gilead. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, as Samuel had instructed him earlier, but Samuel didn't come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away, so he demanded, come on, we got to do something here. Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. And then just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel walks up. He arrives. And Saul went out to meet him, and he welcomed him, but Samuel said, what is this that you have done? And Saul replied, I saw my men scattering, Aaron. You didn't arrive when you said you would, and, and the Philistines are at Michmash, and they're ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help, so I, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering myself before you came. How stupid, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must come to an end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. The Lord's command. And brothers and sisters, I have one thing to say to you this morning. That command was very simple. It was 
one thing. Just one thing. That command was, he was to wait. And he couldn't. And he lost everything. The Lord wanted to show Saul that he could be king. And that the Lord would be with him. But that Saul must allow the Lord to order his steps. Listen, Saul, you can't do your thing and have God bless your thing. You must do what God wants because it was God who made you the king. And ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus died on the cross and saved us, he purchased you and I. We no longer belong to ourselves. We belong to him. So what Jesus is saying to you and me today is this. Yes, I gave you the gift of eternal life. Yes, I have saved you. Yes, I have redeemed you. But I want the privilege of ordering your steps on everything. What you buy, where you move, where you go, how you raise your children, everything about your life. Because now you belong to me. I didn't buy you with silver, silver and gold. It cost Jesus his own blood. So now we belong to him. Have the faith, the Lord is saying to us, that I will tell you what to do and when you should do it. Saul goes to Gilgal. He waits seven days. Things get tough. Circumstances look really bad. Problems get worse, and he's getting anxious. Man, oh man, this is not, it's getting worse. No word from the Lord, nothing. The heavens are brass. Things are getting really tough. Look at how overpowering and intimidating those Philistines are. His troops are scattering. They're trembling with fear. Shaking all around him. The enemy gets more overwhelming. And they're sure they're going to lose. Imagine the pressure he felt to do something. you got to do something. But the Lord said, Wait until I give you further instructions. The hardest part of faith is waiting. The hardest part of faith, of having faith, is waiting. Because in the waiting is when you experience all the stuff that gives you reasons to not want to have faith. Circumstances get worse. Bank account gets more empty. The problem in your body gets worse. Marriage relationship is crumbling even more. But if the Lord said, wait, then child of God, we have no alternative but to do what he says. One of the hardest moments in life when you can lose everything when it's, you've literally got your life right on the line, is when you're not sure what to do and you're facing all these voices and pressures and people around you telling you what you ought to do and you feel like, I gotta do something. It's getting so bad, I gotta do something. Everybody's looking at me, expecting me to do something. I gotta make a decision here. He wants me to marry him. I'm supposed to take this job. It's this, it's this. But there's no word from the Lord. And the test is, will you act on your own or will you wait for God to give you direction? Will you obey in just this one thing? Now imagine how important this is to God. 
since Saul wouldn't wait, God says, I'm done with you. Done. Done with you. Because I found a man after my own heart. And what do we know about David? Is he perfect? No. But you find time after time after time that David is inquiring of the Lord and saying, God, show me what to do. How should I fight this battle? If I fight it, how do you want me to do it? Where should I go? Where should I hide? And because of that spirit of obedience and submission to the Lord, God says, that's a man after my own heart. And Saul was rejected because he couldn't wait. It was just that one thing that Saul wouldn't do, and he lost everything. One word. I don't know who this is for today, but you may be here today and in the position of making a decision, but you've not received a clear word from the Lord. I'm here to tell you in just this one thing, wait on the Lord. Don't mess it up by moving ahead of God. There's a bit of type A personality in all of us. We gotta, we gotta do it. We gotta we get nervous. We gotta do it. We gotta do something. If God's not gonna show up. I'm gonna take this on my own. Our culture teaches us that we must get aggressive and do something. Even if it's wrong, do something. But that's not the word of the Lord. No, 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 no. If we've committed our lives to Jesus, let's give him the privilege of directing and ordering our steps. But Dan, I've been waiting, and it looks like God is not going to show up. Dan, you don't know how long I've been waiting, and it just looks like God's not going to show up. I want to declare to you this morning, God is never Bow your heads with me in prayer, please.